0: Thank you. Love you, buddy. Love you. I didn't intend to take Pastor's place today, but a couple weeks ago, when he said he was going to be gone on a Sunday, I asked him if he had somebody to preach, and he said yes. But then he said, You want to speak the 17th? I said, Sure. So um, I want to thank you for I begin here for all your prayers and cards and thoughts. I'm gradually. Recuperating, getting stronger. Uh, I want to also thank publicly thank my wife for all the help she's been. I put her through a lot, and uh, I thank her for that for helping me. I saw a video the other day. This has nothing to do with my message. It might fit in a little bit, but I saw a video the other day. A man was in China, instructing some Chinese pastors. And he asked them a question. He said, what happens if we get caught? They said, well, you'll be deported within 24 hours, and we'll go to prison. There were 22 in the group. He said, how many here have been in prison? 17 of them raised their hand. He had some Bibles handed out to them, and he didn't have enough for everybody. He noticed that one woman took one, and she gave it to somebody else, and they were in 1 Peter chapter 5, I believe. And he noticed that she quoted the whole chapter. He said to her, where'd you, how'd you memorize that chapter? She said, oh, I've memorized a lot of chapters. He said, when? He said, when I was in prison. He said, how? They don't give you Bibles. said so they sneak a piece of paper in with scripture on it. He said, "Well, if you get caught them they take the paper away, he said, yes, they do. that's why we have to memorize them so quickly." And he said, "How many people are you all responsible for here in China?" He began to figure it up, It came up to two million. We forget that there's 3.1 billion Chinese, and these were responsible for 22 or for two million. Christians in China. And one of them said to him, In America, you can go to church anytime you want. He said, Would you pray that we would become like you? He said, No, I won't pray that. They were kind of shocked. He said, But I will pray for you that we become like you because you've sat here for three days on the wood floor with no air conditioning. In America, if we don't have cushion seats and air conditioning, we likely won't come back. And if we have to sit for more than 45 minutes, it likely won't come back anymore either. So rather than praying that you become like us, I'll pray that we become like you, devoted to the Lord. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Matt posted something on YouTube or Facebook. Sometimes it's hard to know what passage to preach from unless you're asked to preach a specific passage. But I chose in Romans 13 verses 11 through 14. And sometimes when I pick out a passage, I I get toward the end of the week of preparing. I think, is this really what I should preach on? But I didn't have that trouble this time. Here's what Pastor Matt posted. A lot of evangelical preaching over the last 10 to 15 years has witnessed a return to Christ-centered preaching, which is a gracious and glorious thing. However, in the pursuit to preach Jesus as king, many preachers and pastors have truncated their message to that single point and have created a void. That void has left Christians wandering around in God's kingdom without knowing how to live. As citizens of the kingdom of God, brothers, we must tell people how to live in this kingdom with practical and ethical preaching. Let me be quick to add, I don't believe Pastor Matt's preaching has left us wander around not knowing what to do. His preaching is very practical. So look at this morning as being just a reinforcement of what he's preaching. The text, as I said, which I've chosen, is Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. And as you're turning to that, whether you have a Bible or a phone or iPad, I'm old-fashioned. When I read a book, I like to have the book in my hand, not Kindle. I like to have a Bible in my hand so I can turn the page and look at other verses as the pastor's preaching. But I'll ask you a question. Have you ever fallen asleep while driving? You don't have to answer. But I have, unfortunately, and I live to tell about it. When I graduated from high school, I moved to Fort Wayne, Indiana, lived with one of my sisters, and I got a job at a General Electric factory. I was on second shift and I got a 10 percent increase in pay because I worked second shift, I made 2.65 an hour. This was 1965. And I didn't come home every weekend, but I would come home every two or three weekends, and I would usually leave right from work. And at that time, the highways between Fort Wayne and Marysville was all two-lane, no four-lane highway and I had to go through a bunch of little towns. One of the towns I had to go through was Rockford, Ohio. And a few miles before you get to Rockford, Ohio, there's a 90-degree turn in 33. And I fell asleep before I got to that curve. And I'm convinced that God woke me up because I was going 60 miles an hour into that curve. I barely had enough time to raise my, take my foot off the gas, crank the wheel as much as I could without spinning out, and lean this way toward my driver's door, Stones were flying everywhere, and I made it around the curve. I didn't have trouble the rest of the way home. <laughs> You've heard the phrase, your throat's in your, your heart's in your throat. That's, that's the way it felt. My heart was in my throat at that time. By now, I should have the passage in front of you, and there's three main points, and I'll point them out as I read. And the title of my message is be who you is, because if you is who you ain't, you ain't who you is. Let that rattle around your brain a little bit. It'll, it'll make sense. Be who you is, because if you is who you ain't, you ain't who you is. I actually got that at a basketball clinic 30 years ago. I haven't used that title in 30 years. The coach who was talking with, I believe, was a Christian, his name was Don Meyer, and he was talking about us not being trying to be somebody else, be who we are as a coach. Don't try and mimic somebody else. Just be you. I had a, one, one year we were playing North Union, and Tim was there because I forget which son was playing for me. But this, there was a man sitting behind Tim, and Tim he had no idea Tim was my son-in-law. And this man said to Tim, who is that guy coaching? He looks like Stan Kirby coaching. (laughs) So let's turn to look at Romans 13, verses 11 to 14. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So he just told us to wake up. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. He just told us to clean up. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. He just told us to dress up. Those are my three main points. Wake up, clean up, and dress up. Paul is not talking about literal sleep. Like when Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane with his disciples and he asked them to pray and they couldn't pray, they fell asleep. I'm sure if they had known how dire the situation was, they would have been able to spend some time in prayer. But they were sleepy and like Jesus said, the the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But here we're told to wake up spiritually and we can be awake spiritually doing good things. We can be lulled to sleep by our family, by our job, by doing a lot of good things, which aren't bad enough themselves, but Paul says we need to be spiritually alert. And Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful for your enemy. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Paul elsewhere says Satan even disguises himself as an angel of light. So whether he's a roaring lion or looks like an angel of light, his purpose is the same. To devour us, to destroy us, to ruin our testimony, to lull us to sleep spiritually. I just read this week, finished reading, I read first Kings and the story of Solomon, and how well Solomon started out. God told him because he didn't ask for that he would make him wise like no one before him and no one after him. But he said, I'll also give you riches because you didn't ask for them. But it says there that toward the end of his life, you know, Solomon married seven, had 700 wives and 300 concubines, and it says that his wives drew him away from his God. So that Solomon began to sacrifice to Molech and all the false gods that that his wives worship, he went to sleep spiritually, and ended up disaster. Paul says we need to wake up here. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Perhaps you say, "I thought I was saved. How can my salvation be nearer?" And it's true. We are saved once once we become a Christian. Once we're born again, there are. Several transactions that take place, I had a book, I couldn't find it I was at Moody, and this man said there were 70 transactions that take place when we become a Christian. I can't remember all of them, but we are in Christ. We are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We become heirs of God and joint heirs of Jesus Christ. We are redeemed, we are ransomed, we are justified. Justified means that God declares us Righteous. It doesn't mean just like I've never sinned, but rather he declares us righteous in spite of our sin. Just to mention a few things which happen when we become a Christian, and Paul says neither height nor depth nor powers nor principalities nor angels nor life nor death, anything present and future, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. So once we become a Christian, once we are born again, we are a child of God and no one can take that from us. The second, and that's the first sense of salvation, justification. The second sense of salvation is we are being saved from the power of sin. That's sanctification, and sanctification is not perfection. Sanctification is a process by which we become more Christ-like in our attitude, in our actions, in our speech, in the way we treat people. I wrote a quote. I saw a quote just the other day from A.W. Pink. I wrote it in the back of my Bible. He said, it's not the absence of sin. It's not the absence of sin, but the grieving over it, which distinguishes the child of God from the empty professors. It's not the absence of sin, but the grieving over it, which distinguishes the child of God from the empty professors. So sanctification is a process to me, falling down and getting up, falling down, getting up, falling down, getting up, all the way to heaven. Paul says, I strive for the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, not as though I had already attained it, but I strive for that mark. Paul realizes he'll never be reached the state of glorification in this age, but he strives for it. He says, what I count as gain, I count but loss for the sake of knowing Christ. So the second tenth of salvation is sanctification where we become more Christ-like. And as we grow in Christ, we certainly should sin less But our sin will cause us more grief because we come to know how despicable sin is and how much God hates it. And so the more we become like Christ and when we sin, we'll grieve more and be more heartbroken over the sin we do commit. The final tense of salvation is glorification, that time when we will be delivered from the very presence of sin be no possibility of sinning, no more sex trade, no more sending 18- and 19-year-old young men to fight wars. I like to study World War II, and especially Vietnam, because Vietnam is very personal, and I have watched Many ceremonies where Jets bring home flag-draped coffins, and they treat them with the utmost respect. And I see the families heartbroken over the loss of a son, a brother, a husband. There'll come a day when that won't happen anymore. He says, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. We need to wake up because the night is far gone. The night refers to that kingdom that Satan rules, that kingdom which is opposed to God and opposed to righteousness and holiness, opposed to all that's good and right and just. It calls good evil and evil good. That's what the kingdom of darkness is where Satan rules, and he says it's far gone. That night is far gone. It's almost over. The day, on the other hand, is at hand, and that is where Jesus reigns. James 5, 9 says the judge stands at the door. It's as if he's standing ready to open the door to come in judgment of this world. So, we need to wake up because the night is far gone and the day is at hand. That world that Satan rules hates God and hates the gospel, and it hates us. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, verse 18-19, Remember, if the world hates you, remember it hated me before it hated you. If you're of this world, the world will love you as its own. But you're not of the world because I have called you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. This world is no friend to Christians. This world is no friend to the gospel and to Christianity. This world would love to destroy the gospel and destroy us. But the night is far gone. It's almost over. And in Revelation 22 7, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly. People think that life goes on the same as before. I got news for you, it doesn't go on the same. There's only two people in this room this morning who were here when I first came to Calvary Baptist my sister, and myself. Everybody else has died, so the world doesn't go on as, as always. It changes all the time. We went to the Kirby picnic yesterday, and there were several people not there who used to come because they've gone home to be with the Lord. So life doesn't go on the same. People die. And one day, Jesus will come again Then Paul says, so let us cast off the works of darkness. The word cast off carries the idea of taking something off. When I go work on a sewer line with my sewer machine, and I come home with my clothes filthy, I don't take my clothes off, take my shower, and put those same clothes back on. Neither should we as Christians put on acts of sin. We should cast off cast off the works of darkness. On the other hand, we need to put on the armor of light. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. I think Ephesians 6 tells us what putting on the armor of light is. Beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And you say, I thought we already put on Christ when we became a Christian. We did. But there's a sense, and that's that's done legally. That's a legal transaction. There's a practical sense we need to put on Christ for our daily living. We need to put him on in the practical sense as we live this life. So, clean up. Cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Then he says, let us walk properly as in the daytime. 1 John chapter 1. Verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. I think what John's talking about is an habitual way of life. If I'm habitually walking in darkness, I don't have fellowship with, with the Father. We lie and do not practice truth. But if we walk in the light, that's seasonal light. If our practice is walking in the light, in the season light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin. If we say I don't sin at all, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So walk properly as in the daytime. Now Paul is going to give us three sets of two things that we are to avoid. And I want to remind you that Paul is writing to Christians. He's not addressing unbelievers. Unbelievers are never told to wake up because they're dead in their sin. They're never told to clean up. we are told to come to Christ in faith. And we're never an unbeliever. not told to dress up. They can't. They're dead in their sins. So Paul is addressing believers. And it's hard to comprehend that Christians could be involved in such activity. Not in orgies and drunkenness. Not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Not in quarrelling and jealousy. Now be honest with yourself. Who of you would have put quarreling and jealousy with sexual immorality or with orgies or drunkenness. We wouldn't have put them together, but Paul does. We know what orgies are. It's unbridled sexual behavior. And drunkenness most often accompanies it. Not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Sensuality is doing what good feels good with no restraints. The King James says, not in sexual immorality. In, in, uh, I forget what, what version I have, but it says sexual immorality. The King James says, not in chambering. It refers to the bed. In other words, we're not to be involved in one-night stands. So not in an origin and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, immorality and sensuality not in quarreling and jealousy. Those are two sins which have crept in the church which we kind of think, oh, they're okay, they're not so bad. Quarreling is someone who argues about everything. How many churches are split because there's quarreling and fighting, putting myself ahead of you Put him what I want first instead of what others want. And then he says, not in jealousy. Let me give you an example of jealousy. Someone gets the opportunity to go to Hawaii for vacation, and you've always wanted to go to Hawaii for, on a vacation. That's me. I was in Hawaii one time for two hours on the way to Vietnam. <laughs> we landed in the military base, and through the fence I could see Hawaii. We got off a C-4 transport plane, which had netting seats, and got on a jet and flew over the ocean and while over the ocean, when the when the engines quit, oh great, not going to get there. But jealousy is someone gets the opportunity to go to Hawaii for vacation, and you say, "I hope it rains every day you're there." Well, you wouldn't be so bold to say, "I hope your plane crashes," would we? <laughs> But we hope the vacation's ruined because we're jealous because they get to go and we don't. Why should we be jealous over what we, we worry about what others have? Why don't I have what he has? Why worry about it? I don't have the same gift he does. So what? God's the one who gives the gifts. He asks us to use them faithfully. He's not going to judge us for something he doesn't give us. So, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, quarreling and jealousy is just the opposite of love. 1 Corinthians 13 says. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have to get the prophecy and understand all mysteries and knowledge, if I have all faith it is to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, And deliver my body up to be burned, but have not love. I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy. Love is not arrogant and rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Um, Love is not irritable. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love never ends. Love is putting others ahead of myself. The opposite of the opposite of quarreling and jealousy. Verse 14, he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, dress up. Be who you is in Christ. Make no provision for the flesh. That means give no forethought to it. Don't think about what I can do to indulge my flesh. We need to starve the flesh. Give no thought to how I can satisfy its desires. The truth is, Paul says in Romans 6, we are dead to sin, but yet, we yield sometimes our members as instruments of sin. God has made every provision. Don't misunderstand me now, because I'm not going to say we, are, we can be sinlessly perfect. But God has made every provision for us to be victory, victorious in every situation. The reason we're not is because we yield to the flesh. It's not because God's provision is lacking. It's because we don't avail ourselves what he has given to us. Am I getting ready for Christ to return? Am I living my life just for the present, or am I being prepared to meet him? Are we making ourselves, am I making myself ready? Am I living in the light of his word Becoming more like Christ every day. Are we being who we are? Or are we being something we're not? That's the challenge we have before us. And let's close a word of prayer. I'll ask you then to come. I've asked you to come and play a song for us that we'll sing in closing. Lord, we thank you for your word, we pray that you have taught us what we need to be taught, and you will enable us to change what needs to be changed so that we can live lives which are pleasing and honoring to you. Help us to strive to become more like you in our life, in our speech. In our actions, in our attitude. We ask the thing in Jesus' name. Amen.